um, and good morning. Um, <clears throat> Long ago, a Zen master was sitting with his student by the side of a stream. All these great stories take place in nature, it seems. All the great teachings. So there they are. And the student turned to the teacher and said, I want to study Zen, but I, I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to begin or where to begin. It's a question I've heard now and again. And the Zen master turned to the student and said, oh, do, you, do you hear the sound of that stream? And the student says, yes. And the master said, begin there. Begin where you are. We have been hearing the sound and seeing the sights of tomatoes lately. And we have been beginning there. We've talked a lot about tomatoes. And so I don't want to leave our friend the tomato because there's great teaching where we are. We don't have to read a lot of books. I want to keep stressing this, that our teachings are everywhere, that everything is preaching the Dharma. And so we're not leaving virya, translated energy, effort, enthusiasm. Just because we've had one session on virya doesn't mean we understand virya. So we're we're going back to it or going forward to it and continuing to look, to listen, to pay attention and see what else is in this perfection? What else is in the perfection of energy, effort, and enthusiasm? And at least to begin with, we have tomato teachings. And so I turn to the teachings of the tomato. And my question for us this morning is, why is it that we care about the life and death of a tomato plant? You know, Kelly had these three baby tomato plants, right, Kelly? Maybe we should get a report. Oh, four, okay. 
maybe we should we should get a weekly report on the status of those plants but and i also have my bonsai which is a great teaching so we're really being taught by plants these days but my question this week is why are we taking such good care of these plants? Why you gave one to your father or two to your father? Um, and last time Brenda was here, she had to check in on her baby, even though it's my baby now. Um, she cared about it. She cared about this, this plant. Uh, when I go pick up produce from Kelly next door, I see the incredible care with which she gardens and takes care of her plants. And yesterday, for example, this wasn't a plant story, but a bird flew in to one of my windows, crashed in and fell to the ground. And my immediate response was to take care of it. But why? Just let it, it crashed into my window, just let it be there. You know, what? it's none of my business. But my immediate reaction was, oh my gosh, I'm gonna take care of this. So why do we take care of things? It's easy to see when something is very close to us, like a parent or a loved one, a beloved person, a friend, a son or a daughter, even a colleague, people, our pets, they're very close to us. And so it seems natural to want to take care of them. But to take care of a bird that crashed into my window or to a tomato plant that someone gave me or that I rescued from Lowe's. <laughs> you know, when I go into Lowe's and I go to the rescue, rescue um, shelves and I see all these plants that are <laughs> They just were not taken care of. And I just want to rescue all of them. And unfortunately, I rescue too many of them because I can't take very good care. I, you know, where am I going to put all these, these dying beings? Um, where, where is that coming from? Where, where is that coming from? Things that we're really not identifying ourselves with, which are not really um, close, you know, close relatives or uh, connected to us in an intimate way. What, what kind of emotional, psychological, spiritual state is that? Um, and I think that we, I think we can all recognize that sometimes that care is because we identify ourselves with with that so it's a kind of a self-centered care um 
you know, do, am I caring for that tomato plant because it reflects on my competence? You know, do I not want it to die because I don't want to be seen as failed? So that's a self-centered feeling about taking care of something. Or am I just taking care of it because it's providing me food? And, I, and that's also self-centered because I need, I need its productivity. Well, the plants that you got, Kelly, you know, you can buy tomatoes at Wegmans. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like you're depending upon that plant, that tomato plant for your sustenance. Um, so is there a form of care that is not self-centered, in which we are not getting, getting anything personally back. And so that is the energy. Um, I'm kind of identifying virya or energy with this kind of care this effort that we make and this enthusiasm that we bring to taking care of things and particularly taking care of things that are not closely related to our personal identity. And in trying to feel into that energy, I come up with the word love. That's it. That just came. This energy is the energy of love. It's the energy of, of life giving. And what is more life-giving than the energy of love? Now, there is a distinction between love, which is self-centered and self-involved, and which we expect a kind of mutuality Sometimes we call it romantic love or passionate love or human interaction. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, in Greek times, they called it eros, erotic love. That's not the kind of love that we're talking about in Buddhist practice. The kind of love that we're talking about is also uh, can be can be named in from a from a Greek term called agape, which means selfless love or friendship. Is a kind of feeling of connectedness, of goodwill, as we say in our loving kindness sutra. So 
agape, which is a selfless love, is translated in Buddhist practice in four ways, sometimes called the the Brahma Viharas, or the divine abodes. They're states of being. We could call them perfections, but they're part of the perfection of virya. The four divine abodes are kindness or loving kindness called Maitri, compassion called Karuna, sympathetic joy called Mudita, and equanimity called Upeksha. All of these four Brahma Viharas are just dimensions of the jewel of love. They're all about different ways of expressing this energy. And they're called divine. And it's often the case that, particularly in the Christian tradition, where God's love is selfless. We call it the divine abode. And the divinity has to do with the utter unconditionality, the selflessness of this love. Sometimes expressed as God loved his human creations so much that he sent his only son to die for the transgressions of man. So this divine love is completely selfless and is dedicated to the well-being of others. Now in Buddhist practice, we understand this, this divine love, but we don't personalize it. You could say that we don't make it, we don't self this love into God. So God, from a Buddhist point of view, may be a selfing of this unconditional love. It's okay. We can, we could, we can make this into a self, into a God. Um, and if, that, if that's the way we understand it and we can relate to it, fine. But it, you know, we, we don't have to do that. There's, a, there's another option here that, that we, we don't have to self that love into a God figure. Um, in fact, the word enthusiasm which is one of the ways of translating virya, originally meant possessed by God. Enthusiasm really meant 
originally possessed by God. It's kind of religious inspiration. So possessed by this love, through and through. So this feeling of connectedness, this tomato plant is not me, but it's connected to me. This person is not me, but is connected to me. This bird is not me, but it's connected to me through this selfless love so that when it crashes into my window and is feeling helpless, I respond with loving kindness, with, with compassion, with effort to relieve its suffering, relieve its suffering. So there is a sense of kinship in this love, a sense of friendship in this love, this friendship toward all beings. Ananda, who was one of Buddha's favorite, well, maybe Buddha didn't have favorites, but he, 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 kept, he kept to Buddha's side. He was his attendant. And one day he came excitedly to Buddha and said, I've just had an insight, a deep realization. And Buddha said, what was that? And he said, I've, I've discovered that friendship, spiritual friendship, is half of the half of the way, half of the Buddha's way, half of what it means to be fully enlightened. Spiritual friendship. And Buddha said, no, Ananda, you're wrong. It's all of the way. It's the whole thing. And perhaps now, I mean, I'm understanding this more and more deeply. When he said spiritual friendship, he did not just mean human. He did not just mean the Sangha, but he, me he meant friendship with all things. This selfless sense of friendliness and goodwill to all beings. And this can be cultivated through our practice. We can begin to, beginning with being friendly with ourselves, which is sometimes a, a huge task. And sometimes when we sit, we discover how judgmental we are with ourselves. And when we sit, and look deeply, we can become more and more friendly with ourselves. And then that friendliness, that sense of agape, of friendship, of connectedness, 
which has very little selfishness in it, very little, it's, it's divine, it's, it's godlike. And that is this perfection of the energy of love, of the effort of love, of the enthusiasm, the, the divine possessedness of love. <clears throat> so how do we how do we cultivate this? This is one of my favorite stories. Um, the nice part of having a sangha that comes and goes is that I can repeat stories <laughs> that <laughs> sometimes you don't, you never get to hear, but. Some of you have heard this story, <clears throat> and it, it, they all bear repeating, and I love telling it. Uh, and it has to do with my daughter. Uh, one October, I, I typically visit California, uh, both to teach and to visit with my daughter who lives there. And so one October, I uh, made my trek to California and um, prior to my arrival there, my daughter on the phone told me that, um, mom, when you come to California, I'm going, you're going to be treated royally. That you take care of a lot of people and you uh, give yourself in many ways. And when you come to California, you're going to be on the receiving end of lots of attention and tender loving care. And you'll be the queen. And I said, well, that sounds very uh, attractive. <laughs> it sounds appealing. I'm, I'm for it. So I got off the plane and it happened to be Halloween season, it was October, and my daughter, who's also very creative and funny in many ways, uh, she had gone to a costume shop that they were preparing for Halloween, and she found a crown made out of cardboard. And when I met her at the baggage claim, she was standing there with this crown, this cardboard crown. And she said, here, mom, this is, this is your queen for the day, queen for the week, queen for the months crown. You're the queen. So I put the crown on and I walked through the airport with the crown on my head. And of course, everybody was, well, not everybody, but I guess in California, you know, it's not that unusual. But there were enough looks, uh, and we, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, and when we left the airport, it occurred to me that what if everyone was wearing a crown? How, wouldn't life be different? 
in the way we saw people. What if every being had a, a halo around it, an aura around it? Wouldn't we have a different quality of life? Wouldn't our hearts open? Wouldn't we have mutual affection and respect and honor of one another? If we treated everything as royal, as divine, as having the crown of divinity, of what we call Buddha nature, and that we could see that. We, we didn't have to actually have something on our heads, but we could see deeply into the perfection of everything. And when we just, for example, see a flower, like I have some amazing uh, daylilies outside of my door, and I go out and I, I look at that daylily and it's, it's just complete and utter joy. And everything is a flower. It, it doesn't do anything useful for us, you know, like maybe the tomato plant would, but it's, it's still a beautiful thing. And everything is like that. Uh, Eckhart Tolle talks about the appearance of flowers on the earth and how flowers are one of the sort of useless, <laughs> practically useless forms of life. And yet they're beautiful and they bring us joy. Maybe, maybe that is their use. And that is one of the beauties of Buddhist practice. It, it's like a flower. It, it's, it, it doesn't have any, it's good, as I say, good for nothing, except life bringing, just as love, just as love is a life force, a life force. And we can cultivate that deep seeing into others that that enables, evokes that love in us, that selfless, friendly, emotional, and spiritual state. So I, I want to end with, um, with part of a, a movie script. Thank goodness for the internet. I, I never would have found this. As much as I disparage the internet, it's amazing that I found this. Um, it, it was, it's a movie called, um, it's a movie called Adaptation. Has anyone seen it? Adaptation? I highly recommend it. There was a scene in that movie where twin brothers who are the stars of this movie found themselves in a kind of wilderness area. 
and they had the opportunity to talk you know intimately with one another because they were kind of trapped there one there were twin brothers one of the brothers they were both writers one was a highly intellectual kind of nerdy uh reclusive uh self-judging writer very um you know, very, very uh, highly uh, intellectual, let's put it that way. The other one was really slick and wrote very popular slick novels and thrillers and uh, just was very full of himself. They were very different people. One was named Charlie. Charlie was the nerd, nerdy type and um, no Charlie was Charlie was the slick one and Donald was the nerdy one so Charlie turns to his brother and says you know there was this time in high school I was watching you out the library window you were talking to Sarah Marsh and Donald, the nerdy one, says, Oh, God, I was so in love with her. Charlie says, I know. And you were flirting with her. And she was being really sweet to you. And Donald says, I remember that. And Charlie says, then, when you walked away, she started making fun of you with Kim Canetti. You didn't know at all. You seemed so happy. And Donald said, I know. I heard them. And Charlie said, well, how come you looked so happy then? And Donald said, I loved Sarah, Charlie. It was mine, that love. I owned it. Even Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want. And Charlie says, but she thought you were pathetic. And Donald says, that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago. And then there was a pause. And Charlie looked at Donald kind of quizzically. And he says, What's up, says Donald. And Charlie says, hey, thank you. And Donald says, for what? Thank you.